bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. It's November 30th, and I'm Steve Bonta, filling in for my able colleague, Paul Dragu, who's still on vacation. He will be back, though. Well, foreign policy architect Henry Kissinger died at 100 last night. A House committee report reveals that the Biden administration is spending hundreds of billions per year to care for illegal immigrants. Thanks to AI, seeing is no longer believing. And a court in the Canadian province of Ontario rules in favor of a teacher silenced over transgender book concerns. We have those stories coming up. But first, Ted Macy is a United States medical officer and Navy lieutenant who refused the COVID shot when our military mandated it in 2021. He is now blowing the whistle on data in the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database, or DMED. As the name implies, it tracks servicemen's health statistics. It's the same record that made national headlines in January 2022 with a case involving three U.S. military doctors. They had discovered frightening spikes in DMED numbers following the vaccine rollout. Later analysis revealed that they had made a simple counting mistake, tallying every office visit related to a diagnosis rather than counting each diagnosis only once. However, that was after the Department of Defense had blamed a computer glitch and manipulated historical data to remove the spikes. Well, this past July, uh, Gil Cisneros, the U.S. Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, announced that DMED is working properly. He acknowledged a 151% spike in cases of myocarditis or heart inflammation in 2021 as compared to the previous five-year average. But he blamed COVID infection, not the jab. This week, Lieutenant Macy decided to pull accurate DMED data to see where things stand currently, comparing 2022 to that previous five-year average. He posted a video of his findings on X, and here are some of the increases he lists. So we get hypertensive disease, 36%. Ischemic heart disease, 69%. Pulmonary heart disease, 62%. Heart failure, 973%. Other forms of heart disease, 63%. Cardiomyopathy, 152%. Maisie's video was a follow-up to something his wife Mara posted on Twitter. She complained about a letter that the U.S. military is sending to servicemen who were separated for refusing to comply with the 2021 vaccine mandate. It invites them to, quote, apply for return to service, unquote, following, quote, rescission of the COVID-19 vaccination requirement, close quote. Mara Macy, who is running in the Republican primary in Florida's 5th Congressional District, noted that, quote, Accountability is the only answer. Every single voice of service members who suffered because of these illegal mandates should be heard before Congress. Every single military leader who was informed by service members presenting them with the law and still did nothing should be investigated until we remove all those who put their careers above the mental and physical safety of our service members and their families. Close quote. But there may be trouble brewing for the Macy's. After her husband's whistleblower video went viral, Mara posted this on Twitter X. Ted got a phone call from his OIC, officer in charge. If you see that he takes down his video of the DMED data the other day, know it's because his OIC informed him that his CO, his commanding officer, ordered him to do it. Also know this, I am a congressional candidate. I do not have a CO. There will be more. 
With me today is New American Senior Editor Rebecca Terrell. Rebecca, you're quite an expert on, on COVID. You've been following this story for years. You've written extensively in the New American Magazine. First of all, just to set the record straight, I mean, the media has been consistently claiming that millions have died from COVID, but the truth seems to be that many more, in fact, died from COVID policies, including the vaccines, inclu- than, than actually died from the disease itself. What, what's your take on that? Absolutely. Well, we're seeing more and more evidence of that as uh, from actuarial information. Uh, the actuaries are talking about unprecedented uh, mortality that we're seeing. We already remember, Steve, before any we, anybody ever heard of COVID, we were already looking at a country that was on the decline. Um, in fact, most uh, developed countries are on the decline because they're not reaching their replacement birth rates. And now you have these outlandishly high mortality rates that actually Actuaries are reporting. Uh, we are talking about an existential threat here to our culture, to our country. Um, and a lot of people, you know, you start talking about this and people will say, oh, you're racist. No, this has nothing to do with race. This has to do with culture. This is maintaining our, the United States of America that we know, the United States of America that, uh, you know, just built from from the days of the before the revolution ground up and and became the world superpower because we're we're hard workers we we know how to make a living and and make things better make the world a better place and our enemies are really really jealous of that and want to bring us down uh and and destroy our country and this is one of the ways i believe that they're doing it. We look at the pharmacovigilance data that our own federal government collects, and we know there are red flags all over the place. That that these vaccines, ever since this jab rollout, we are seeing extraordinary numbers. Not that the DMED data that, that Ted Macy is ex, uh, is exposing is just just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, I want to point out, too, he is, um, this is not the first time he has blown the whistle on this. He's been reporting and been making headlines. So um, I really do wonder, I, I wonder what kind of trouble he's going to get into. I think he's a very brave man to do this. Well, well yeah, and I mean, I mean, one wonders, too. I mean, the military now is is sort of saying we're sorry without saying we're sorry. I mean, they're, 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 I think they're doing it in a way that they can, hope, ho- hopefully they're hoping to evade liability and responsibility for everything that's happened. But it's clear that they're doing an about face because now people don't want to join the military. And it's a combination of things. It's not just what happened during COVID. It's also, of course, these reprehensible non-policies that are, be, you know, that, that are being pursued by the Biden administration, all the woke stuff that's going on. Surprise, surprise, the, the traditional demographics that used to join the military, typically people that had in common a love for country and an interest in serving the United States and general conservative outlook on things, um, those people aren't interested in serving in the military anymore. So now, as a last recourse, you know, the military, oh, you know, now we want these want these people back. But I, I wanted to know, so, I mean, we're, we're being told that, you know, these forced vaccines, COVID vaccines are now a thing in the past. We've learned from it. It will not be repeated. What do you think? Oh, well, I mean, anybody who with a sane, with a logical mind knows that um, this type of thing will be repeated. It's, uh, they don't just stop. Um, the what was it? Who was it? Uh, Emmanuel. Um, uh, what was his name? Who said, never let a crisis go to waste. 
You know, that that seems to be the policy. You know, I want to point out, too, something you just brought up of our young people don't want to join the military because they, they don't trust their their leaders to look out for what's best for them and to uphold their rights. Um, this is a one-two punch because look at what's happening to our local law enforcement uh, forces across the country. Young people don't want to join because they see things happen like the George Floyd case, for instance. And uh, we know in that case that his uh, his autopsy revealed um, it, he was not killed. He, he died from an overdose of drugs that he took. And yet that poor man is is wasting away in jail and now he's been stabbed. Um, Derek Chauvin. And so, you know, it, it's a it's a very, very analogous. And what's happening is we're becoming a George Soros. The George Soros vision is becoming a reality through all of this because young people don't want to sign up. Well, and, and I mean, you know, returning circling back to covid for just a few moments. I mean, it also seems that the damage has been done and we don't know how much longer this rash of uh, myocarditis and young people dropping over for no uh, reason. All you know, it would seem that this 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 may be this may take decades to play out. Absolutely, it should, and that is what has been uh, from the start. Uh, Sukhart Bhakti and Peter McCullough and other brave doctors who come out warning us about what would happen. They were warning prior to the rollout of the vaccine because they knew about the science behind it. They knew of the detrimental effects to our, especially to our cardiovascular systems, and they they explained it even before at the very dawn of the COVID vaccine rollout. They explained all of this, and you know. That's another. We have to be brave. You and I are brave just talking about it right now. You're censored on social media for even mentioning, for even whispering about anything like this. So yes, I do believe that this will happen again and again and again once they start censoring truth. Well, I, I hope you're wrong. Thanks a lot, Rebecca. Next up, foreign policy architect Henry Kissinger dies at 100. Freedom is the cure. You're dead on. This is the largest experiment performed on human beings in the history of the world. The more you know. What they're doing is they're forcing vaccination on people. And I believe they are killing people with this vaccination. The freer you are. It's murder. They are basically murdering people in hospitals. The all-cause mortality we know is now higher in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. Stay informed on the issues that affect freedom. Get a subscription to The New American today. TheNewAmerican.com Welcome back, everyone. Former U.S. Secretary of State and prominent architect of globalist American foreign policy for decades, Henry Kissinger, has passed away at the age of 100. Kissinger, who served as Secretary of State for both President Nixon and President Ford, was the primary architect of American rapprochement with communist China and was a major factor in legitimizing Mao Zedong's murderous regime around the world, beginning with his infamous secret trip to China in 1971. Following that event, the free Chinese government on Taiwan was banished from the international stage and cut off from diplomatic ties with the United States, a callous act that set the stage for today's increasingly belligerent Chinese behavior towards Taiwan. 
If there's a world war over Taiwan and the South China Sea, it will be as much a consequence of Kissinger's actions as anyone's. Yet now that he belongs to the ages, he will never be held accountable by any earthly authority. Moreover, Kissinger helped to initiate the policy of detente with the Soviet Union and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in negotiating the peace accord that ended the Vietnam War. To his many admirers, Kissinger was the quintessential modern foreign policy panjandrum. But to his many detractors, including this magazine, he was both an unrepentant communist sympathizer and amoral advocate of globalism. As even liberal journalist Seymour Hirsch pointed out, quote, the dark side of Henry Kissinger is very dark, unquote. Kissinger himself once famously stated that, quote, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, unquote. Yet, Despite his obvious loyalty to causes antithetical to decency and to American national interests, Kissinger exerted enormous influence over his long life. Indeed, it is no exaggeration to say that we live in Kissinger's world, inasmuch as we are still suffering the long-term consequences of the globalist agenda and of our decades-long national love affair with communist China, for which Kissinger brokered the first trysts. Only last July, shortly after celebrating his centenary, Kissinger met with Xi Jinping in Beijing, who received the American, German-American diplomat with undisguised admiration. Well, whether Kissinger ever had occasion to second-guess his life's course is doubtful. Known for his enormous ego, he candidly told Time magazine more than 40 years ago that, quote, the longer I'm out of office, the more infallible I appear to myself. Well, we're going to have much more on this on tomorrow's show. I'm going to interview Bill Jasper, who is a longtime expert on, on Kissinger, and we're going to talk about his legacy. So stay, stay tuned or tune in tomorrow to tomorrow's show for a lot more on Henry Kissinger and his life and legacy. Well, moving to our next story, a report from the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security reveals that the Biden administration is spending hundreds of billions per year to care for Ill illegal immigrants. Here's Fox Business Network reporter Madison Allworth reporting on the numbers. Stuart, we have new numbers, a new report from the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security Majority. They say the price tag per year is $451 billion. That is both for the housing and care of the asylum seekers as well as those known Godaways. The Homeland Security Committee released the report earlier this month saying that it reveals, quote, how the policy of D policies of DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and President Joe Biden have precipitated the worst border crisis in American history, close quote. The 49-page report includes direct costs associated with health care, law enforcement, education, welfare, housing, transportation, and child care. It also accounts for losses to private property and business owners, as well as Americans in general, who have to take a back seat to illegal aliens coddled by the administration's open border policies. The report prompted a town hall op-ed by former law enforcement officer and Mississippi Republican U.S. Representative Mike Ezell, in which he wrote, quote, Every state has now become a border state, close quote. And he discussed the alarming toll of the unprecedented flood of illegals on local law enforcement and first responders across the country. Azell noted that, quote, Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens said his agents have been arresting an average of 47 aliens with serious criminal histories per day this year. Local law enforcement is seeing the same, and every one of these crimes and arrests, as well as the resulting jail time, falls on taxpayers. He concluded, America cannot sustain this ongoing crisis. Well, bring, bring Rebecca back. Rebecca, 
Can, can America survive, do you think, as a free and independent country with this, this sort of radical transformation we're seeing in our, our cultural and political landscape that's, that's being triggered by these waves of illegal immigrants? Well, the simple answer to that question is no, unless we stop it. And that's our job. That's why we're here. That's why we're talking about it, getting people woken up about it. And, and we have to do something, you know, at the legislative level, local as well as state and national level to stop this. I think that it's a it's a good step in the right direction that the home the House Homeland Security uh, Committee uh, published this report. Um but just to talk about it isn't going to, just lip service isn't going to solve the problem. And I think it's interesting too, if you read that 49 page report, I haven't read the whole thing, but time and time again, what they mention is that all of these grants from the Department of Homeland Security are going to being used to reimburse state and local governments and NGOs, and they just keep on repeating NGO, NGO, NGO without going into, so far I haven't been able to discover exactly, what are, what are these NGOs? Because in the past, if you look at the grant approval process through the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of that money, and when I say a lot, I mean in the 90, 90 to 99 percentile is going overseas. This money this is this American taxpayer money that effectively is being laundered. And they say, like for right now, they say, okay, in this case, it's being used to care for illegal immigrants. What illegal immigrants? We know we have all these reports of, you know, Haitians coming. This isn't just Mexicans crossing the border. It's people from all over the world, immigrants coming up through Mexico into the United States. But where is that Homeland Security grant money going? We need to investigate what they're talking about, these NGOs. And that's what I'm digging into. I mean, I'm, I'm just skeptical, Rebecca, that, 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 that there's ever going to be any sort of institutional resolve in D.C. because... Because even right. with a public, Republican majority in the House, when Mar and, uh, and all the talk, we all the bluster we've been hearing about, we need to. I mean, if there were ever an official, not a president of the United States, m deserving of impeachment, it's Alejandro Mayorkas. And yet, when Marjorie Taylor Greene introduces the measure, it gets voted down. Maybe because That's Marjorie right. Taylor Greene and all the Republicans want to distance themselves from her because she says mean things that other people are thinking but don't dare say. I don't know the reason. But when that happened, I thought, okay, all right, nothing's going to happen on that front either. It's going to be the same old, same old. This guy's going to skate and not be held accountable for the monstrous crime of literally throwing open our borders and letting in, you know, not to, I'm sure many of them are fine people that are just looking for opportunities. I get that. I've lived abroad in poor countries. I understand why people legitimately want to get out of many of these places and get here and they're just seizing an opportunity that's made available to them. But that's not what our government is supposed to do. It's not in the business of charity. And defending the borders is one of the things that the federal government was created to do in the first place. So this dereliction of duty is just goes to the core of the, you know, the, 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 the endemic dysfunction in Washington, D.C. that I think goes beyond, I'm calling it dysfunction is probably being charitable. It, right. it, it, it verges into treason, but no one That's is willing to call it that. 
Absolutely. I agree with you. And we have this horrible misconception in this country. We've got to turn it around. We've got to, people have to understand that the states created the federal government, not the other way around. The federal government doesn't tell us what to do. We're supposed to be the ones telling the federal government what to do. Back in the day, nobody paid attention to who was president or what was going on on Capitol Hill. Everyone focused on what was happening in their state legislatures, and that's the way it should be. Uh, We've got to get back to a point where we have legislators who acknowledge that, who are not wanting to fill their own coffers, but to uh, serve the country as statesmen. Right. And I mean, uh, and the, in this case, the federal government should be doing something that it can do, ought to be doing better than the states for, on the part of the nation as a whole. Thanks, Rebecca. The New American just released our latest collector's edition bookazine. It's called Self-Reliance Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. This polished collector's edition includes articles on a number of topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, financial self-reliance, the importance of community, and many other things. The authors are all experts on their topics, and we encourage you to get a copy or copies. You can order copies at thenewamerican.com shop or by calling our office at 800-727-8783. Next up, because of AI... Seeing may may no longer be believing. In 1988, the John Birch Society produced a documentary so predictive, it's as though they had a time machine. Out of Control, Immigration Invasion was produced and hosted by investigative reporter William F. Jasper and looks at the growing problem of unrestricted illegal immigration that, in 1988, already saw upwards of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens within the borders of the U.S., unknown agents from around the world, using the southern border as easy entry. Certainly some are innocent families escaping hardship, but also certainly some are criminals, potentially terrorists. Is it not appropriate that there be some criteria for the entry of any sovereign nation? Why should the U.S. be different than Canada, Germany, Russia, Japan, or every other country on the planet? Out of control, immigration invasion. Watch this time capsule of prescient wisdom at thenewamerican.com slash out of control. Welcome back, everyone. Well, seeing apparently is not believing anymore. AI architects warn that hyper-realistic digital forgeries, also known as deep fakes, will be indistinguishable from reality by next year. In a rapidly evolving digital landscape, the imminent release of artificial intelligence tools that enable the effortless creation of fake videos across social media platforms is raising alarms among experts. According to Axios, quote, one leading AI architect told us that in private tests, they no longer can distinguish fake from real, which they never thought would be possible so soon, unquote. Estimates suggest that by 2025, over 90% of online content could be generated by AI, leading to what experts term model collapse as AI struggles to differentiate between data produced by other AI systems and human-generated content. With many promises of AI benefiting humanity come major threats. Consider that AI-powered techniques are already among the top five tools used to conduct fraud online in 2023, or that they open the floodgate of online sexual exploitation and abuse, especially for girls. Another risk pertains to the legal system, where the evidence may be impeccably fabricated. Deep fakes of disturbing images were reportedly used in the ongoing war in Gaza. The technology was used during the war in Ukraine, where AI generated image of President Vladimir Zelensky calling on his troops to surrender. 
The government seems to acknowledge the risks posed by this technology. In October, President Biden signed an executive order on AI marking the federal government's initial comprehensive regulations on generative AI systems. The order entails mandates for testing advanced AI models to prevent their rise in weapon creation, recommendations for incorporating watermarks on AI-generated media, and provisions addressing concerns related to privacy and job displacement. It also launched a new government website. Companies such as Microsoft, OpenAI, Google, and Meta are among those that have voluntarily committed to AI safety and security measures. Yet given the widespread accessibility of tools that generate deepfakes, these measures alone are unlikely to sufficiently address the looming threat. Okay, Rebecca, so just talking about this, this issue for a moment, it's kind of scary stuff. I'm already seeing a lot of AI-type um, yep. videos popping up on YouTube and so forth that I can usually tell are AI. It's still, they, they look fairly lifelike, but they're still not indistinguishable. But when this, this first became uh, you know, possible a few years ago, people said, well, what's to prevent uh, people who want to frame political enemies, like Donald Trump, for example. What's to prevent people from using AI for creating fake videos and audio recordings of Trump allegedly doing scurrilous things that he never did? I mean, right. it's just a nightmare scenario just for the political valence alone, let alone the other possible applications. It is a nightmare scenario. And if you consider, too, that our government's already put together a blueprint for an AI bill of rights, um, that is personalizing AI that's giving, that's giving, and I mean, can you say tran this transhumanism that they're talking about that right now sounds like science fiction, but that's what they're aiming for here. Do you see another theme running through the, all the stories, most of the stories we've talked about today, and that's one of an uh, economic, an employment crisis, because here this is AI's uh, replacing workers in the, in the military, we're, uh, with the COVID, with COVID vaccine, we're seeing drastic rises in our mortality rates. Another indicating also an, a coming employment crisis. Um, uh, and then we have the illegals crossing the border um, and also in, endangering employment for Americans. So, I mean, I see this as something that we, our, our elected officials have got to get on the ball here and and rescue the country. Yeah, I mean, we certainly are in a, in a time of incredible dislocation instability, and and that certainly a large component of that, as as in such you know time periods in in the past, has always involved massive dislocation of jobs, changing of expertise, uh, the obsolescence of, of of long cherished work skills, and this kind of thing. So we're, we're seeing that. You know, I mean, it's possible that AI will create a whole new suite of, you know, new, you know, novel employment opportunities. There were similar concerns back when the Internet first became a thing and when, you know, personal computers first became a thing. You know, well, will this will this get will this replace all of the manual workers that do task X, Y and Z? And yet yeah, turns out that it did. But, you know, pe people to some extent, there's there's a need for flexibility. I mean, we don't have a lot of wheel rights out there anymore, making wheels for carriages and wagons because not many people use that technology. So, you know, so this kind of thing is inevitable, but, you know, I, certainly it's a concern about the morality of this. Well, moving on to our second story and, and final story, a court in the Canadian province of Ontario has ruled in favor of a teacher silenced over transgender book concerns. In a recent legal development, an Ontario court has sided with retired teacher Carolyn Ber Berjowski, who faced suppression for expressing concerns about transgender-themed books in elementary school libraries. 
The Ontario Superior Court, led by Justice James Ramsey, rejected a request from the Waterloo Regional District School Board to dismiss Berjowski's defamation case, emphasizing the importance of free expression in a democratic society. Well, good for him. According to the Canadian outlet National Post, Ramsey asserted, quote, the Human Rights Code does not prohibit public discussion of in issues related to transge transgenderism or minors and transgenderism. It does not prohibit public discussion of anything, unquote. As a result of the ruling, Berjowski's case against the school board and its former chair, Scott Pietkowski, can proceed with the court ordering the board to cover $30,000 of Berjowski's legal fees. Brzozowski has also taken action against the board, appealing its decision to halt her presentation and claiming a violation of her freedom of expression. The legal battle stems from a January 2022 incident when the teacher was removed from a board of trustees meeting after exposing the dangers of LGBT books. These included The Other Boy by M.C. Hennessy. Following the meeting, Brzozowski, a teacher with 20 years of experience, was expelled from the classroom and the board initiated an investigation. Pietkowski labeled her comments as transphobic. Berjowski, who suffered a breakdown and is still recovering, accused Pietkowski of attributing remarks to her that she did not make and characterizing them as hateful. And she sued Pietkowski. Berjowski took to Twitter to celebrate the recent ruling. In her video message, she recapped the case and thanked all her supporters. Okay, Rebecca, well, I mean, in Canada, no less, we're seeing perhaps a little bit of pushback finally against the radical LGBTQ uh, agenda, the perversions stemming therefrom, and perhaps even more relevant for, for the purposes of this story, the increasing legal and social repression that people who dare defy this agenda have been experiencing. Right. Well, I think in her case, because she is in Canada, she's just lucky that she got a, a judge who was uh, favorable, who was conservative. Um, that, you know, if she'd gotten another judge who interpret the, interpreted the law differently, it, she wouldn't have had such a favorable outcome. And what we need to realize too here is, okay, we say we're we're the United States of America. That kind of thing can happen here. It does happen here too. Um, we're, we are looking at becoming a southern Canada when it comes to what they have planned for, you know, Mark Mickler and the Convention of States, replacing our Constitution with basically what Canada has now, uh, where God does not, rights do not come from God there. Rights come from the government, and the government can withdraw them whenever they want to. Well, um, and unlike so, us, Canada does have hate speech laws. So I don't know, the, the, the judge said, well, in Canada, you can't do this. Actually, my understanding is you can. They do have, unlike the United States, they do have, like many European countries, hate speech laws where the government can say, okay, okay, you know, you, you can say whatever you want, but here are, the, here are the boundary conditions we're setting. And beyond that, sure. you know, if you go beyond that, we're going to put you in jail. So I, I think, you know, she was very fortunate in that regard. She is fortunate, but we have to th consider the larger implication here for our children that this is even being discussed. This is child abuse, Putting these books in schools for children to get their hands on, this is nothing more. This is um, grooming children. Uh, you know, I mean, our FBI is already just inundated with all of these cases of, of child pornography and child groomers. And it's coming straight out of our schools. And it's defended by our school boards. And, you know, the same thing is happening here that's happening in Canada. Yeah, and it's not it's not just being not merely being defended; it's being advocated, and, yes. and beyond advocacy, it's being forced on people. 
by, by these. And, and, and in the United States as well, we don't have any hate speech laws, theoretically. But people are still getting kicked off their jobs, shamed on, 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 on media, banished from, the, from, from social media, uh, deplatformed, and can, otherwise canceled, and so forth. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Next up, John Virch Society Research Associate Peter Rykowski will join us to discuss rank choice voting. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence proclaims God-given rights, and we intend to protect them. Working with people like you for over 50 years, preserving freedom and building a better tomorrow. Safeguarding the Constitution by limiting government power. We are restoring liberties, educating voters, and leading the freedom movement. Join with us. United, we will defend our rights. We are all Americans. We are the John Birch Society. Welcome back, everyone. Well, with me in the studio today is the inimitable Peter Rykowski, research associate for the John Birch Society. And, and Peter is Kind of, for, for those of you who don't know, Peter's a very young man, but he's incredibly capable. And he's the brains behind our push to sort of transform the Freedom Index, which we've had for decades, literally, where we keep track of votes of, of all the members of the Senate and the House. And it's, that, that, that is an invaluable trove of information. But in the last couple of years, we've been moving towards replicating that for the legislators, legislatures of all 50 states. I kid you not. And so Peter's the guy that's making this happen. And he is the guy that we always go to when we want to find out literally anything about any legislator, national or state level, and whatever they're working on. The man is just a bottomless fount of information. But Peter, so Peter, welcome to our show today. It's great to be on, Steve, and thanks for the kind words. Okay, well, we, we have a, you know, much as I'd like to, to, to just go on and on about all these different topics, we have a specific topic today that we that we wanted to talk about, that we want to inform our, our, our listeners and our viewers about, and that's something called ranked choice voting. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Just go with it. Yes, ranked choice voting, the first thing I'll say about ranked choice voting is that it, it is a very complicated system. It's hard for really anyone to understand what it is just because it's such a complex system. But I'll try to boil it down to, to give a very simple explanation. What it is under ranked choice voting, voters will rank each candidate on the ballot based on the order of preference. So their favorite candidate, they'll mark number one. Their second favorite candidate, they'll, they'll mark number two and so on. So let's say there's an election with five candidates Voters will mark one to five, the candidate they like the most versus the candidate that they dislike the most, number five. And then once the election happens, uh, if, if none of those candidates get a majority of the votes, the last place candidate will get eliminated. And all those voters who mark that candidate as number one on their ballot, in, instead their, their number two choice will be counted instead and the number two choice then will be added on to the, the remaining four candidates. And if no candidate still has a majority, then this process of eliminating the last place candidate will continue on and on and on until a single candidate has a majority of the votes. Well, what's the point of doing this? 
Well, the people who support ranchers voting, uh, they their arguments hinge very heavily on notions of democracy, that we of need course. to have a democratic system. <clears throat> and because of that, every candidate needs to have an absolute majority in the vote, a majoritarian system. And so is, is this is this already being used in parts of the United States in some jurisdictions? I know it's being used in other countries. One hears about this quite routinely in certain other so-called democracies abroad. But what about here? Right. Yeah. Two states and several municipalities have implemented ranked choice voting here. Those two states are Alaska and Maine. And then among the cities are New York and Minneapolis, Salt Lake City, and a few other uh, cities across the country. And it's been very clear the effect that ranked choice voting has, has been having. Uh, for example, in New York City, under ranked choice voting, it's taking up to two months to count the votes in the municipal elections in New York City which is a huge amount of time. And in states like Alaska and Maine, uh, it's happened over and over again where conservative candidates will get the most votes, but they'll lose the election to either moderates or liberals uh, because, purely because of the ranked choice voting system. So, so it's, it's ostensibly designed to be more democratic, but it's having the effect of screening out uh, the so-called extremists, particularly on the right. Is that what you're, what, what you're saying here? Exactly. Yeah, the establishment loves ranked choice voting, including, really? including establishment members on the Republican side of the aisle, because that, that is exactly the effect it is having. It's removing any constitutionalist, conservative... Ma MAGA candidates, people right. like that. Mm. From, from the ballot, it's allowing establishment-minded people, regardless of whether it's Republicans or Democrats, to win the elections instead which of course then means that anyone that constitute that the constitutional viewpoint is not represented in our government system. I see. Now there's nothing inherently unconstitutional about about ranked choice voting. I'm assuming right states have broad latitude as to how they conduct their elections and one would assume that this is would fall in it. What we're saying though is that the is is that it clearly is an, is unwise if we desire to preserve some semblance of a constitutional system with the admissibility of candidates who can actually make a difference, like a Marjorie Taylor Greene or, um, or obviously a, a Donald Trump or somebody like that, that if you, if you had this nationwide, the effect would be to ensure that everybody who gets elected, elected as a milquetoast, middle-of-the-roader, who's not, not going to make any waves and is going to preserve the status quo, which is what the, what the establishment desperately desires. Or do I, do I exaggerate? You're, you're completely right in what you just said. It, it, it undermines the representative government that our founding fathers intended for our country to have. And not only that, but there's also the, um, the voter fraud aspect of ranked choice voting. Uh -huh. Because ranked choice voting is such a complicated system, there's, a greater, there's greater opportunities for voter fraud to happen. That's, that's just common sense. Any, any electoral system that's more complicated, it's easier for fraud to happen. I see. And it takes a long time to count. And because it's so complicated, it creates an excuse for computerized voting, electronic voting, as opposed to hand-counted paper ballots, which are the most secure way to prevent any type of fraud or manipulation in the system. Wow. So state governments and local governments, they can enact ranked choice voting, but it undermines the form of government that the founding fathers intended for the United States, and it also increases any type of opportunities for 
fraud or manipulation so, to happen. So, so in this sense, it's sort of similar to the machine balloting and the absentee vote, all this other stuff that we also oppose, not so much in the grounds that sensu stricto, it violates the Constitution, but that it makes it makes the system much riper for fraud and even outright manipulation of, of electoral no, you know, results, maybe across a, a very wide swath of territory, as we saw like in 2020. So you're saying now, now, but so I've got a couple questions to kind of close with. Question one, is is this a growing trend or is it still relatively limited to a few juris, you know, sort of peculiar jurisdictions? And two, more importantly, what can and should we ought to be doing about it? Yeah, well, it is a growing trend. There are several states that are that haven't implemented it yet, but there are strong efforts to implement it. So in states like uh, Wisconsin, right where we're at, uh, Idaho, uh, Nevada, North Dakota, and Missouri, several other states, their efforts either to pass ranked choice voting via legislation or to pass it via some type of referendum where 51% of the population will vo- will decide whether it passes or fails. And not only the states that I mentioned, but states all across the country uh, besides that. So there is growing momentum, unfortunately, for ranked choice voting. Hmm. And to stop it, everybody, every viewer, every patriotic concerned American needs to contact their state legislators, their state representative, state senator, and tell them to oppose any efforts to implement ranked choice voting at the state level. And if their uh, city council members are considering it, contact them as well and tell them oppose any type of ranked choice voting. So it's really important that we contact our elected officials and tell them not to go along with this and tell them why it's such a dangerous idea. And not, and hopefully not to allow it to get to the to, to the state of affairs that we now are dealing with machine voting and the absentee balloting system where it's now in place and it's it has that that inertia and it's much harder to get rid of it now that people have gotten used to it and kind of want to, you know, basically adopt a see no evil approach and 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 think that it's all conspiracy theories and you know bedtime stories that they're that there's actually being manipulated and all this type of thing. So rather than allow it to come to such a pass, what we're encouraging people to do, and you heard it here for, first, most most likely people, this is the next big thing in voting revolution, and we need to stop it before it becomes a really big thing. Well, thank you so much, Peter. This was most enlightening. I hope everyone learned something and that you'll take action on this sooner rather than later. We don't want to add this to the mix in an already complex and challenging situation where voting is concerned. Well, thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news. And if you haven't already, get a subscription to the print edition so you don't miss issues like the one we just talked about. Enjoy the rest of your day and join us tomorrow for another episode.